0: Rockheads, tune in, turn on, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the Internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number three hundred six with guest David Aiken. Recorded live Monday, January seventh, two thousand eight. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR-TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows forms and ASP.NET web applications Online at www.datadynamics.com And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who says, It's all fun and games until someone loses an iPod. Carl Franklin.
1: Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dot and Rocks. This is your old friend Carl Franklin here at Pop Studios in New London, Connecticut. Mr. Richard Campbell is out there on this Thursday. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. How are you? I'm um, just ducky. You know why? Why? Because I got my new eSATA enclosure Ooh. with a 200-gig hard drive. Yes, smoking and fast. I think the word you used before was stinky fast.
2: Stinky fast.
1: This is for the laptop, of course. What's right. great about this uh, is that it's a PCMCIa card, eSATA, and there's a little enclosure. It gets the power from USB, and so you don't need a power source. And it's right. this little tiny little enclosure for uh, for a 200 gig SATA laptop hard drive and, and what
2: it's, a little two and a half inch drives
1: 7200 yeah. rpm smoking 7200 rpm stinky fast <laughs> <laughs> you like that i know you do <laughs> that's funny that's funny right there i don't I, care who you are i don't
2: care who you are you know yeah. they got to get eSATA built into the laptops so they we do. stop needing pcmcia cards for well
1: laptop. that's the way it always works right comes out first in pcmcia and then it just goes nicely into the laptop so, let's get right into Better Know Framework. All right, sir. Friends, our class for today is not a class at all. It is a namespace. Oh. I'm talking system.io.ports. Uh-oh. Guess what that is. <laughs> serial communication.
2: Uh, yes. I have a friend who is a serial communication fanatic.
1: Who you? <laughs> no, I'm not. I used to be before I discovered TCP/IP. <laughs> yeah, once I discovered TCP/IP and sockets, the, all that other all that stuff serial stuff just, just went away. Became very uninteresting to me. But you know, there are certain situations where you do need to talk to serial ports. Uh, lots of robotic devices, and you know, all sorts of industrial machines. Still all kinds use serial of things still use serial. It works. So there's a serial port object in there, and that is the, the most important class. You know, what more can we say about it? If you if you need it, it's there, and I just wanted to tell you about it, and that's Better no Framework for this week. Don't forget about the serial classes. Don't forget about the serial ports. I mean, I hope you can, <laughs> but if you need it, it's there. It's good to know. doesn't have anything to do with USB, though, does it? No. 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 Wow, do you even have a serial port on your machine anymore that isn't USB? Yeah, every every machine still has a serial port, nine pin serial.
2: I don't know. I don't.
1: Every really? is pretty me, extreme man. I let think me look at my laptop here. Let me see. Yeah. Holy crap! No serial port. No serial port. Who's smarter than me? You are just amazing, Mr. <laughs> Campbell. <laughs> wow. Yeah,
2: it's just not that easy to come by serial ports anymore. Lots of serial to USB converters out there, though.
1: All right. Well, you know, if you are serialized or serializable, as the case may be. (laughs) That's a different class. You'll need it.
2: Uh, Richie got an email for us. I do indeed. It's a quick one. Good. Carl and Richard, I've been listening to your show for about a year now, and I really enjoy it. I am actually an IT pro, but with the introduction of PowerShell, I've been playing around a lot with .NET and have started to write some C-sharp code as well. Your shows have provided a ton of information that have helped me work with our developers in a much more productive manner. Excellent. I got to love that. And, Andy, I hope you're listening to Run As Radio as well. Really? You know, I'd we'd go to all the trouble of making a show just for IT pros. I hope you'd be listening to it. Yeah. It's at runasradio.com. And, you know, I'm surprised how much email I get on the Run As Radio side from developers who are listening to the show as well to find out what the IT guys are up to.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you're a developer who's also into IT, so you're the perfect bridge for that world.
2: Well, I feel a little bipolar about it, but I'm excited that I see more and more folks thinking in terms of how do we work together, how do we get more done You know, how could I make sure my apps are going to work with the IT folks well? The IT folks want to know how they can help the developers take advantage of things. It's all good.
1: And that's sort of what today's show is all about, isn't it?
2: Yeah, just on top of everything else, we happen to have a show just about that. Uh, One last word from Andy here. Anyway, I wanted to thank you for getting shrinkster.com back up and running. I just used it the other day and it
1: works great. Awesome. Thanks so much for all your work, Andy Schneider out of Seattle, Washington. Thank you, Andy. It's our pleasure to do that for you. Uh, Let's talk about the Sleepless Road show. This is Infusion.com. They're taking their Sleepless in New York show. Uh, Not really a show, but it's an event. They're taking it on the road. Of course, if you've been listening in the last six or so, seven or so shows, you know all about it. But you might not know that they extended the deadline to tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, Friday, the 11th of January. So if you still want a shot at that... Go to infusion.com slash sleepless, and uh, they'll tell you all about it. Basically... You sign up, if you get picked, you can go to this event, you can participate, and you can win lots of prizes, including an all-expense-paid trip to the Microsoft Office System Developer Conference in San Jose. You also get some really serious training by talented
2: folks who know a lot about SharePoint technologies and other things.
1: Yeah, and Silverlight, for example. So, you know, it's free training, it's fun, you get to stay up all night writing code, drinking coffee and drinking Coke and... Having a good time with the really creative people at Infusion. So Hot and cold running caffeine. Absolutely. And with that, Richard, let's introduce David Aiken. David is an architect evangelist working for Windows Server Evangelism in Redmond. His role, among other things, is to promote and evangelize Microsoft's design for operations. David helps customers realize the value and potential in developing applications that can be operated successfully in today's rapidly changing IT environment. He looks at the entire life cycle, from management modeling to implementing application instrumentation and operating applications utilizing Microsoft Operations Manager and Microsoft Systems Management Server. David has also worked on the Visual Studio 2008 training kit, and the dinnernow.net sample application. Welcome, David agan Hello. Hello. The dinnernow.net sample application.
3: Yes, it's a fantastic end-to-end sample application that um, the guys on the, the team I belong to put together um, has everything in, all the kitchen sink. It's great. And, and it's
1: manageable. And what does it do? Is it like a reservation system or...?
3: Um, it's, if, well, if you've ever been to, um, anywhere and wanted to order food, um, and have it delivered, dinnernow.net is the application you could use to do that. And the plot, quite simply, is there are five or six restaurants all signed up to this Dinner Now service. You go on a single website, browse the food, add it to your shopping cart. Um, it's all Ajax, um, with WCF services driving that part. You can then go to the shopping cart, sign out, kind of uh, checkout process, and um, we use card space for authentication. Again, WCF services kicks off a workflow, which actually goes and sends the order to the restaurants. The restaurants have a WPF application where they can manage the order. When it's ready for delivery, it goes out to a Windows Mobile um, application, again using WCF. Um, there's some PowerShell in there. There's some MMC in there. Um, it's completely the easiest thing to install. Um, we have a completely automated setup which guides you through the whole process. Um, and that's dinner now in, in 60 seconds.
1: Wow. That sounds good. So all those things working together. Um, how does, uh, how does your experience with mom and, um, all of these management things come into play in that, in that sample?
3: Um, at the moment, the, um, in dinner now, there really isn't any um, mom story in there. I shouldn't call it mom; it's operations manager story, in there. And the reason is, when we added it, it was it was hard. Um, we had to hand code all of the um, instrumentation that the management pack would need. Um, so there was lots of manifest. There was a whole bunch of infrastructure coding going on. Then we had to build the management pack, and it, was, it just wasn't a good story. And and to try and kind of put that out as a sample of this is how you should build apps, we kind of felt that we were, you know, cheating a little bit and saying, you know what, this is so, not so difficult, but so long-winded, we weren't given any assistance. You know, Notepad was your friend almost. That We actually took it out of the app, and it's not going to go back into the app until um, the next version, well, the version after the next version. Hopefully, by the time you listen to this, the next version will be out. So we'll do that. That one step closer, but we're actually waiting for um, a new tool from um, f- for Visual Studio. It's called the Team System Management Model Designer. Ah. a bit of a, a mouthful, and it's the um, it's Notepad on steroids. Well, actually, it's not. It's it's a whole modeling um, tool built upon the DSL toolkit in Visual Studio, and it allows you to graphically describe. The health model for the, for an application.
1: Let's define DSL as domain specific language, right?
3: That's right, yes. So yeah. we, we're just using the extensibility points in Visual Studio. And we have a, a designer surface where we can drag on, um, what we call managed entities. And those managed entities, um, represent our application. So an example for dinner now, we have a, a whole bunch of, um, WCF services which are hosted in IIS. Uh, we can drag a, an entity on there to represent those services. Wow! And then what we can do is we can say, well, you know, some, at some point these services may go wrong. So, what types of things are going to wrong go wrong, and how are we going to represent that when it comes to the IT pro side of things? So, and, and this that's is what cool. you
2: mean by a health model for an application?
3: That's right. It's it's um, it's like going to the doctors, and and you, you have to give some kind of diagnostics information to your doctor you don't just sit there and, and offer a stack dump um to the, to the doctor and that's what we do in in dotnet applications if we're lucky we we get a stack dump sometimes it's just you know i was doing this and then it crashed and i'm not sure what happened but i restarted it and all my work was gone and nobody has a clue pretty you know, soon the doctor what went won't, wrong and, and everything
1: pretty soon the doctor won't ask you how you're feeling they'll just read your chips you know,
3: that's right. Yeah, they'll just give you a whole bunch of antibiotics and, and
1: yeah. oh, I see by your stack dump you had a uh, trace error here and yeah,
3: and an yeah, MRI it's... and a lumbar puncture and uh, they'll just go to town. Where really you just need something for a sore throat, for example.
1: <laughs> Speaking of sore throats, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you and I both have been suffering from a sore throat for the last I don't know a couple of days. But anyway, that's so, right. two
3: hours ago I couldn't even talk. So
1: yeah. Well, it's interesting to see how this stuff is making its way into visual studio now. Um, for the developers who don't, who aren't on the IT side and don't, you know, maybe get into the enterprise development with operations manager and and all those things, describe to us what the players are in in that whole world, what the different uh, applications are and what they do.
3: Um, right. So um, basically, on the IT pro in the IT pro world. Um, there's a whole suite of software you can get from Microsoft which allows you to manage and monitor and maintain your entire infrastructure. And one of the products is um, System Center Operations Manager. And this is really the one that developers should take a look at because what it can do is it can monitor everything from the OS through to Exchange, through to SQL, and even your line of business application. What I mean by monitoring is... You can set it up to look, first of all, for your application, so it can figure out which computers in the network your apps deploy to. And then you can set up um, what we call monitors, which will look at your application and look at the instrumentation that's being sent out from your application. So let me define instrumentation. It could be an event written to the application log. It could be an event written to... Um, a text file, it could be a performance counter being incremented or decremented. It could be a WMI event. There's a whole host of things in the platform that we can monitor. So the idea is if you build your app and you add some of these events and perf counters in your app, then operations manager can look for those. And if you imagine an event being written to the log when you get a, um, a SOAP exception, for example, you could turn that into something useful that the IT pro can a detect and b do something about, and and think b is important as well as the a bit. So instead of the app just crashing and nobody knowing really what's going on, and and perhaps the solution is you reboot everything. Um, what you, you what you can do is go all oh, right. So we've got this event. We can tie some knowledge in with that. So you know we might have an event with an ID of forty five hundred. What does that mean? It, it may Means nothing, but if we have some what we call knowledge base information, um, with that it might say, well, you know, if you get this event, it means that these two machines have a, a communications failure. You should check that they're both on the network, that you know you can ping them, and and give them a whole list of diag- diagnostic steps that they can go through to figure out you know what the problem is. And it's as simple as that. It's it's giving that little bit of information. Um, to the IT pro to will allow them, or to allow them, or to allow System Center to actually figure out what's wrong. So really, we want to get rid of the human factor here. So if we write an event of the log, and the solution is that you have to go and restart IIS, or you know you have, you have to go and ping the network guys to say hey your route has gone down or whatever, then we want to automate all of that, and so it becomes more um, kind of dynamic if you like.
2: So I'm just thinking from an IT point of view what I think you're saying at the minimum level if the app's going to crash at least log something to the system event log or to the application event log
3: so there's some kind
2: of record of why you crashed yes and and system operations manager can pick that log event up and do something with it of course the, I mean the guy could always go in and actually just look at the logs but the real uh, the real no-no is to crash with no explanation. That's right. And yeah. popping a dialog on a server, not acceptable.
3: That's right. And <laughs> even, even if you just log something, it doesn't matter how good or bad the information you put in the log. If we can figure out why that happens, then we can complement the information at a later date. Right. So you I mean, just, you you might have no idea how the IT pros going to handle it. You just have to perhaps state the fact that. My SQL connections flaky. It's it's yeah. crashed. And then the IT pro can figure out why and perhaps embed that knowledge back into the management.
1: It's really it's really good to to lean on the IT people when things like that happen because that's where programming stops being, you know, the creative and fun and well, not yeah. necessarily, but I mean now you're dealing with issues, right? Like um in our publisher application, we have a, a file transfer protocol. You know, we use FTP to to move files. And you know, in the first iteration of it, if the file was abnormally terminated, it just gave up. It just said, "Up, oh, error." You know, so it took that having to go back in, figure out how to do the retrying um, with timeouts. That's another thing too. Most developers get a timeout. They just report, "Up, oh, timeout. We're done." Well, no, yeah. no, you you <laughs> have to try again. You know?
3: Well, you're not done.
1: <laughs> you're not done.
3: <laughs> you don't give up. But uh, then no.
2: let's start thinking through the next. I mean, that's sort of the first stage of evolution. I am get past the dialogue failure into writing a log entry. Uh, I got to think that it's better to to end the app cleanly or even self-restart
3: than it is to,
2: to actually crash.
3: That's right. Um, and there's there's a bunch of um, services in um, Vista and Longhorn Server for app restarting, and that you can tap into um, if you wanted to go that way. Um, it, from an IT pro point of view, they really need to know. So they really need to know that here the application's crashed um, and what they can do about it. Um, just going back to the the kind of the the, the kind of experience for the developer. I know a lot of developers who get this and tell me that they've got to write a whole bucket full of code to actually write these events, and then they're not sure whether they're writing the right events or the wrong events or or anything like that. And there's a whole kind of kind of worms about you know the the code that they have to do to enable the events to be written or to to create a performance counter. And you know it, the, there's examples there in the SDK, but we don't make it. No, super easy. There's no dialog box in in Visual Studio where you go file new event and fill out the box and and you have the event. Um, Except we do now. We have the um, management model designer, which allows you to specify those events in the model. And we actually generate all of the code for you. So you're giving it an event ID and a message and which log you want to write it to. And we take care of all of the... The code that you would need to write to actually write that to the log. We also take care of all the installer code you have to write to create uh, an event source or performance counters. And we we also take care of all the config you need to set up as well. So it's, it, it, you know, after the developer realizes that, hey, we need to write this event to the log, we've got a tool now um, that makes it easy for them to do that.
2: Now, this is only one part of, I guess, Several different things that could be doing. I, I'm, uh, logging failures. I guess you, you could go further and say, how about logging some warnings? Yeah, you know, not not just after I. The only time I hit the log is when I crash or when I can't continue to execute. That seems like sort of the bare minimum. I'd love to be able to tell you in advance, hey, I'm running out of space, or hey, I've had to retry that SQL connection a lot. Right. So before I before I give up on it, I give you some indication that things are going badly.
1: Do you yeah. find that people respond to warnings in logs or just critical errors? Uh, I find that warnings generally go unaddressed until the critical error shows up. Then
2: you see, oh wow, I have had a day of critical of warnings that I could have responded to.
3: Right, that, that, that's right. Um, I think it's th- there's three things you can cover in a health model. Basically, there's there's three states. Um, there's green, which is healthy. There's red, which is failed. And everybody gets that. And then we have a right. yellow state, which is in between red and green. And people are not sure about that. <laughs> people go, well, it's either broke or it's not broke. And I say, well, it might be working, but it might not be, you know, it might be hitting a few timeouts, having to do a few retries. So all the operations are taking six times longer because of these retries. You may be breaking an SLA because of that. M- might you want to know that? Uh, maybe, yes, we we can say that. Um, Because normally, you know, sometimes things just break, and sometimes things rust and then break, um, and you want to know when it's rusting. Certainly, a good IT pro will set up monitors on that type of thing. So if they get, you know, if you write a timeout, like you've had to retry, they might set up a rule to say, well, you know, when I get five of these in a space of two minutes, I want to know about it, because chances are something's about to fail, Um, and if the developer enables that in the scenario, then the, the IT pro can choose to do something with it or ignore it. But the point I always make is if you don't put it in there in the first place, they can't do anything with it.
2: Right. And and I, I got to think that a, an important part of all of this is allowing the logging level to be adjusted. I get very frustrated with applications that spam my logs with telling me how good everything is.
3: Yes. There, there is some guidance around... What just you need to write to the logs? Um, I, I know a few apps where, you know, you may as well turn your logs off because they become useless because they write so much pointless yeah, information. And they, the yeah,
2: they render you blind. But I guess one of the things about Operations Manager is helping you filter out all that garbage to get to
3: the to the warnings that are really relevant. Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can do that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, shutting the gate after the horse has bolted sort of thing because... You still have a big management headache of, of managing these huge logs, um, and whilst the the OS makes that relatively pain free, it's still another task that you know you can make sure that your logs are big enough in size that operations manager can feed them on to the to the central servers, and there's a whole bunch of management things. So whilst mong can help, we really want to fix the problem at the root. Yeah, and say hey, look, you, know, you know what, devs, if you want that chatty, I'm in this method. I'm in that method. Oh, look, I'm in this loop. I'm in this loop again. I'm in this loop again. If you want that kind of chatty stuff, then go and write it to your own text file somewhere and have that so you can turn on tracing and off tracing. So that leads us onto a great thing is the difference between tracing and providing health information. And tracing is useful for a developer, so great stack traces, all that kind of lovely things. IT Pro, Stack Trace, it's not that nope, helpful. Not going to help them at all. Not really.
2: Now, yeah, I think the only time I see IT pros use tra- stack traces is when they're asked by the developer to give them one.
3: <laughs>
2: so go yes. turn this on, run it for an hour while you're having this problem, then give a copy to me.
1: Yeah. Right. But ultimately, they they're interested in messages like disk full or
3: <laughs> timeout yeah. or. And that's tracing. When the de- when the developer gets involved in the support call. We're into tracing, and we're into that. You know, the, the the calls being escalated, the the tickets being escalated, the devs involved. Now, one of the things we're trying to kind of reduce is the, the cost of actually maintaining your line of business apps. And if the people on the front line get in a nice, clean event in the application log, and they look up in operations manager, and there's some nice knowledge base article that tells them how to diagnose and correct that problem, fantastic. The front line fix that. If it's going to be escalated up through the tiers back to the dev, you've got to pull the dev off what they're doing, which always hurts. Yep. They've got to then go and find the right build, the right machine, and set all the environment up so they can have a look at the problem. And then maybe they do a fix or they go, yes, you just need to go and change this value in the config file. And then they've got to go back to what they were doing. And it, you know they're not going to be straight and productive going back to their previous job.
2: Yeah, what you just described could be a week
3: yeah <laughs> mm, yeah and you know we work with some organizations that are you know eighty percent of their um, support calls go to their devs and it's it's a ridiculous cost um, and devs aren't happy um because they're spending so much time fixing old problems or or looking at old code when you know they shouldn't be in that situation but
2: no, yeah, especially if they're getting down to doing diagnostics of a networking problem. Like this is <laughs> not actually. If I don't have to fix code to make this work correctly, then probably I shouldn't have been on this call. I shouldn't have gotten to me. You yeah. ought to have known, been able to know what the problem was, so you could have dealt with it.
3: Yeah, but you know, if you've got a stack trace with a SQL exception written in it it's almost like, well, why did we get that? Was it because we couldn't connect to the SQL server? Was it because the table didn't exist? Was it because we didn't have permissions? If we put a little bit more information into that log mm. instead of the, the trace, the IT pro can go, all right, user didn't have permissions. They can then look up oh, what user accounts are trying to access as. You know, did we restore the database and forget to map all the user accounts across and all those kind of things, um, rather than the dev having to check out co- you know. Connect up to the source control, get that build out, and you know, figure out why that would be written to the log.
1: Aren't most? Isn't most of the time the, those jobs just default to the developer to do that kind of stuff? I mean, do do IT professionals and developers really work together like that in, in out there in in uh, the world, or am I just delusional?
3: Well. I I did have a conversation with a customer, who shall remain nameless, who were really interested in automating the process of getting the support call from the IT pro to the developer. They wanted to be able to do that automatically. Mm -hmm. As quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. As quickly as possible. And I was like, (laughs) you really aren't getting what we're trying to do here, are you? It's... it's (laughs) Right, it you isn't wanna...
1: it isn't a
2: meeting request. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't you want your line staff
1: to be able to deal with the problems themselves?
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then, you know, if there's a, if it's a bug in the application, the developer ultimately has to fix. They're sitting there waiting for the IT pro to respond to the to the to the IT problem. I mean, it just seems like getting Getting IT pros and developers to work together when you're in the debugging phase of something seems like I don't know a challenge.
3: It is, and it really needs where this where kind of the the whole building the health model and instrumenting the app really works is when there's executive buy-in to it. Yeah. Once once the upper management are like convinced that they need to spend the time to do this, then you know. That avoids the features being cut and and all those kinds of things.
2: Well, and this was a line you used right at the beginning before we started recording this show of make manageability a feature so you can cut it. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yes, but that, we don't want to say that. We don't want to say that. We want, but I think it's we, a
2: really valid point that once that's on the feature list, right. manageability. Mm. Yeah. Then there's an obligation. Why are we cutting this? Why does this keep getting pushed? If and if it does keep getting pushed, and after a while, it's like, well, it deserves a turn. It's right. been ignored for two revs now. Yeah,
3: yes, yes.
2: So I, I mean, I really buy into the idea of putting it on the board. I'm. I don't normally drag strange loop into this, but. We've had this exact experience where, but we decomposed it. It wasn't just manageability, but rather specific features for manageability that we were able to say, this will ultimately save us money down the road if we have these capabilities in it.
3: Yes. And that, you can only do that if you think about it. And yeah. And what's not happening is people aren't thinking about it. Well, um, really,
2: I think it's having a mechanism so that operations can get on the feature list, can get all the way back to the development planning phase with a, here's what's hard about taking care of our application.
1: Yeah. yeah. And you're only going to get it on the feature list. If there's somebody on the team who's willing to champion that and, you know, from experience saying this is definitely a good idea. I I, I find that it's very hard to get preventative and, uh, you know, things, um, as features, you know, on the board. You know, most people are thinking what we want it to do. What do we want it to do? What do we want it to do? Well,
2: and I think you also combine into that uh, very much a developer mindset of there will be no bugs. Oh, yes. Ego. (laughs) Rather than have an application that is tolerant to failure, you build it off the mindset that it's always going to work. So it should fail. When it fails, then we fix it rather rather than it recovers elegantly. And devs, that doesn't
1: mean you're stupid.
2: (laughs)
3: It's just that's
2: (laughs) we're trying, you know, everyone wants to believe their code is perfect.
3: That's right. And and I think there's a history between devs and IT pros that needs to, there's a relationship there that's broken. And it's been broken over a long period of time. And it's going to take some time for that to get fixed. So what we're not expecting is, You know, people to go, we want to do this. And then, you know, the sun comes out, there's butterflies flying around, everybody's prancing around singing jolly songs. Um, it's not going to happen because everybody thinks the other side's idiots and, um, you know, how can they possibly understand what their job's like and what their role's like and what they've got to do? So, in a few situations, what we've done is we've encouraged people to look at existing applications, um, and try and pick out what, you know? what's the five or six top support calls about? Hmm. And is right. there anything there... You know, so you say you've got the top five. Is there anything you can change in the app in the next revision that makes it not go away, but just makes it easy to detect those things?
2: Um, yeah, ultimately if, knocks them off the list, but if it just made it easier to manage it.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah, if it's easier to detect that one of your dependencies is offline, then you can, somebody can fix it and rather than spending three hours figuring out what's wrong and then, you know, oh, it's that. We can fix it. If we know straight away, then the fix is quicker.
1: Hey, this is Carl. I just want to take a minute out of the show to tell you about Telerik's Q2 2000 tools update, which can be summed up this way. Blazing fast performance for ASP.NET. WPF-like visual effects for Windows Forms, and codeless reporting. The Ajax-based content editor is now 76% faster and much more intuitive. The grid also received a performance boost, plus PDF export, frozen columns, and they've even added a new awesome scheduling component. What I find even more intriguing is Telerik's Windows Forms suite, It's unbelievable that it offers WPF-like visual effects like scaling, rotation, object motion, transparencies, and so on without WPF. As a result, you could have grids, tree views, ribbons, and more with a previously impossible level of interactivity and appeal. Telerik has recently added cab support, which makes the component set a perfect fit for large enterprise applications. Lastly, with Telerik reporting... You can create advanced business reports in Windows, Web, or PDF format using pretty much design time only. Wizards, expression builders, and converters help you with the design, styling, and integration. You'll also be amazed to see some unique features, like CSS-like styling and conditional formatting. See what all the fuss is about. Download a trial at Telerik.com, and don't forget to thank them for sponsoring .NET Rocks. In your bio, there's a, a term, Microsoft's Design for Operations, which is in capitals. Yeah. And I'm not so sure we've defined that yet, have we?
3: I don't think we have. So um, and Design for Operations is really building applications where the operations is a user.
1: So it's really a philosophy. It's not a product.
3: It's not, it's not a product. It's, it's part of um, a bigger strategy that Started about five years ago now, called the Dynamic Systems Initiative,
2: right? Okay,
3: or DSI, which you might have come across. It's now called Dynamic IT, or you can call it Connected IT. But it's all about getting the IT pro and the developer and the business analyst working better together, and kind of making our software work between those three diverse personas, if you like. So. Integrating ops with developers and developers with the business analyst and, and building tools and sharing knowledge between those, um, kind of stages in the development or people or processes or, or, you know, making all that easier. So already today we've got a whole bunch of things with, um, TFS integration with project server, um, with, you know, team system with the new modeling tools with the, uh, for management. We can one of the things the modeling tool does is generates a management pack for you, so you don't even have to write the management pack and it's it's kind of making those tools all work across the entire business from kind of start of project to end of project um and that's what you know d s i or dynamic i t is all about and the design for operations piece is really what's the devs what's the story for devs what have they got to do to make their apps manageable
2: now so far we've really only talked about events and, and logging but yeah. there are a few other elements there you I, I really think about operations manager more as like a, a super advanced perfmon because there's yeah. a lot of tricks perfmon I think is one of those tools that
1: never gets any love. <laughs> it, it could do an awful lot. It's just not a pretty product. Well, and the the product that comes to mind that is the elephant in the living room, or the whatever the metaphor is there, I can never remember it. But is uh, PowerShell. Yeah. How does PowerShell fit into all this?
3: So PowerShell tackles uh, um, not so much the health side of things, but actually the the conf- the operation side of the configuration um, and the the actual. Doing something with the app part of it, so PowerShell um, is—we is, don't show whether it's an IT pro-targeted thing or a developer-targeted thing because we—it gets love from everybody. It's—it's it's a shell, it's an interactive shell and scripting language, and there's not anything you can't do with it on the Windows platform. Right. So it—it's built upon the, the .NET framework, so it does require the .NET framework to run. And on the command line, you can go and create an instance of any .NET framework class, and then you can manipulate it. And you can do this interactively on the command line, which means you can write a script in Notepad or your favorite PowerShell editor that uses .NET objects. We can also create com objects. We can interact with WMI. We can interact with Active Directory, the registry, the file system, um the certificate store, the environment, everything. So it's really the one stop place where you can actually tap into absolutely everything on the platform. And administrators can use this to do anything on the platform. Um, and you know if you can do it on a in a command line that is scriptable, then you can automate it. Right. And that's the key here is that you can automate it. So going back to dinner now the setup process, um, even from version 1 um, about a year ago, used PowerShell. It's it, Without PowerShell on, dinner now doesn't do anything um, because we use it for all of the setup process. The latest version, um, 2.5, only uses PowerShell for setup. Uh, there's one slight task we do still in VBScript, but everything's done in PowerShell. So we set up databases. We create certificates and put them in your certificate store. We create IIS websites. And everything's driven from PowerShell. So you can really automate anything you like, um, absolutely anything. In the Visual Studio Training Kit, we use PowerShell to make sure you've done the lab correctly. So if you're going through a hands-on lab, you do the first exercise, great. It's not until the fifth exercise you realize you, you made a spelling error in the first one. Well, in our hands-on labs, every time you do an exercise, you run a little PowerShell script, and it goes and validates what you've done is, is correct. Um, So that's just a couple of examples of of where you can use it. Now, what can the dev do, I guess, in in their applications? Well, PowerShell is now part of the um, common engineering criteria at Microsoft, which means, in layman's terms, that all of our server products have to support PowerShell in the box in, um, I think, a certain time frame. It's 2009. So any release from 2009 has to support PowerShell which means that SQL IIS exchange already does but all the system center things everything will have a PowerShell interface to administer it wow wouldn't it be great if your app had a PowerShell interface to administer it what's what's involved in that it's really it's really so easy um it's unbelievably easy and unless you've tried it you you just won't get this um, <laughs> <laughs> it really is If you've ever tried to build a a console app in .NET, and I don't know about you, but 90% of my code is always working out args. Yep. Public static, args zero. Is it there? Is it the right parameter? Everything like that. And then after all of that, you get your three lines of code that actually do something. (laughs) In PowerShell, because we have the, 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 the runtime that can do all of that parameter parsing for us, we actually just declare properties. And we add an attribute and say, we want this to be a parameter. We want it to be position four. We want it to be mandatory. We want to make sure that it's a string. And uh, if you think great. about you know, building an ASP.NET page with the validators, right? it's almost the same. You just have a property. You tag it with a bunch of attributes to say you want it. You want to make it mandatory. This is its name. This is its alias, everything. And PowerShell takes care of all that command line processing for you. So then, all you need to do is write those three lines of code to actually do something. Jeez. Even if you don't want And there's a template out on um, the Channel 9 sandbox website. So there's a Visual Studio template. So you can go File, New, PowerShell, Commandlet. Wow. Um, It's basically just a a class library. Right. But it's easy as that. Now, you needn't even go as far as that. If you're writing a .NET application... You could just build a class that exposes all of the things you want your admin to be able to do.
1: Right, because PowerShell can
3: call into the framework. It can call assemblies. Yeah. 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 So that is the easiest way to do it. What's nice if you go and build some what we call command that's um, on there and and actually use the syntax and everything for for PowerShell. It makes it much easier to discover and use and everything like that. And there's a great example of that in the dinner now scenario if you want to... you know, grab that and, and download it and have a look.
1: When I heard DinnerNow.net, I was thinking it was a web app, but I went there and looked at it while you were talking about it, and it's a it's a it's a Windows app, right? Or is it a WPF app?
3: It's all of those things. Ooh, <laughs> it's it <Yes>. has a <laughs> ASP.net Ajax front end. There's a WPF <laughs> component, and now there. there's a Windows Mobile Six component. So we, we've really tried to build a, an end to end application that uses all of the technologies wow you know the current 3.5 well the version that's there now is, is version 3 I believe but the, the, you know the, what's available on the platform what can you do with it how do you put that together you know we talk about WCF and workflow and, and all those things just how do you put together an application that uses those that actually does something more than adds two numbers up right well that's awesome
1: yeah. Now, what was your participation in DinnerNow.net?
3: Um, so the, the, it's an interesting story. This when, when I first got involved with DinnerNow, um, and it's been a, a whole team put together. Um, I'm not going to mention names because I'll forget somebody and it will really upset them. There's, there's five or six people being involved with DinnerNow from the start. And like any other application, you know, and, and I'm sure people experience this wherever you are, with whatever app you're building. Um, it, it worked on exactly one machine. Um, mm. And if you wanted to do any work, you would grab the Dinner laptop and you would write some code on it. <laughs> um, so I came along, and at the time, I was working in England, not in Redmond, and it was kind of hard to pass the past day of the laptop. Right. Um, being like 5,000 miles away. So yeah. um, we, we, we kind of worked with the team to introduce source control, um, and all the kind of good dev practices, um, checking in, checking out, all that. And I put together all of the um, deployment side of it. So everything that gets you up to the point where dinner now actually does something on your machine is is all kind of my fault. (laughs) Um, We have a a great dependency checker um, tool in there, which um, you have the source code for and everything. We basically scan your machine to make sure you have all the prerequisite software installed. Um, cool. And we give you guidance about, you know, if, if it's not installed, we give you a link that either installs it, in the case of IIS, or a link to the download site where you can go and download a trial version. Or, all
1: right. One more very important question because I know Richard has one. Um, which is better, bangers and mash or mushy peas?
3: You know what? Um, bangers and mash, I would have to say. Cause, <laughs> I'm with you. I'm a bangers and mash guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I miss
2: sausage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I was down at Hannafin's Irish pub the other day and I was getting a cob salad and I asked for a f I asked for the waitress for some bangers on the side. <laughs> she, she gave me a cross-eyed look. All right, I didn't yeah. quite get know that one, huh? Well, they actually have bangers and mash there, but I just said, I want some bangers on the side. <laughs> that's funny
3: oh,
2: alright let's get into some of the elements around building an app that, that's going to work well in operations, we really only ever got into the logging side of this but I'm really interested in your viewpoint on instrumenting, creating those Perfmon counters Like, how is that done and so, how far should we go because it seems to me like, when I go
3: into Perfmon there's too many that's right and when you go to Perfmon, you're probably looking at all of the, the kind of platform counters where, you know, everything's instrumented and you decide what you're going to use. What we don't want you to do is going to add 400 performance counters to your app. Um, because then probably your app's going to spend more time updating the counters than actually doing what it should be doing. Uh, whenever you add something, you've got to make sure it, it means something, that it adds value to it. So, you know, you can sit down and, and, for example, if you want to go and add some counters to a service, you could say, well, let's just add a counter incremented every time somebody makes a call. Then you could say, well, we want to know a particular... which operation they're calling. And then you could go, well, we want to know which operation, but then we want to know what the calling app was. So you could, you've could you got different levels where you could, you know, instrument this thing. Then again, you could just go into the framework and turn um, WCF performance counters on and get all of that for free. So... There's some kind of swings and roundabouts, as I I like to call it, on where to go for a particular piece of information, whether it's already there in the framework and you can just use it, or whether you've got to specifically add it um, on there. And you may add that because you want to know the throughput of your app so you can do capacity planning, that kind of thing. It may be that you want to do it because you have to respond within a certain amount of time and you want to monitor those SLAs. So the reason behind why you might have a perf counter, will determine if you actually go and build it or not. Um, You can write code, but what we'd like you to do is um, take a look um, when we release this tool uh, because we'll write the code for you. Um, And then you just define the counters. um, We generate a whole bunch of helper classes. You just make a call into the helper classes and and it's very easy.
2: And I got to think, there's there's two pieces here. One is is figuring out what you're going to measure and actually accounting for that measurement, and then there's the mechanism to register it into Windows so that it shows up in PerfMon and ultimately into Operations Manager.
3: Yeah, Now we can do everything on the second piece automatically. All you have to do is decide what the first piece looks like. Right. And you define that in the model, and then we take care of the rest.
2: Well, and outside of the built-in stuff like being able to instrument against WPF, if you're really instrumenting your app, this is a, not an easy thing to figure out. What are the relevant measures of this application?
3: That's right. It's it isn't easy. Um, some people look at it from a service point of view, and that's nice. So you know, if they have a service, what, what is it providing? What types of things might you want to know about it? Some people over-engineer it and end up with hundreds of counters. Some people have three and find that they're useless because they don't give them the right information. They don't tell them what they need to know. You need to put these things in early in the life cycle so that when it's, you know, when you're running tests on it and things like that, you're getting that data and somebody needs to be looking at it and figuring out, is that data useful? And the person who can do this is the IT pro, unfortunately, Um, which means that you've got to engage with the IT pro folks before you hand them across the DVD. Yeah, i got to think
2: this is part of that interactive relationship, <laughs> right. is, yep. is getting them involved in the testing so that they can help figure out what the instrumentation looks like. That's right.
3: And it's the only way it's going to work, really.
2: Well, that's really opening. What I like about this is now I finally have a reason to open the door to IT at the beginning of the app
1: rather than after I ship the first version. Right. I mean, it, it, it really is less about the technology and it addresses more cultural issues with dev shops that… You know, this is obviously where we need to be going.
2: Yeah. Now, you're going to provide us a library to write to Perfmon. Where does WMI fit into this? And, I, and I, just to make be my own acronym, police, that's Windows uh, Management Instrumentation.
1: That's right. Something every Microsoftie loves to talk about.
3: Yeah, yeah. So here's my take on it. WMI is fantastic. You can do absolutely anything with it unless you're a .NET programmer brilliant <laughs> really, uh, it's awesome <laughs> and we fixed it actually so. <laughs>
1: <Prior> to, <laughs> i gotta tell you you know richard and i bandied around the idea of doing uh wmi for better know framework and yeah. then we were just like nah yeah don't go there <laughs> no it's
3: no. very it's tough code yeah my goodness it, it is so here's the story right up until framework version 3.5, the only way of writing a WMI provider in the framework was, you, you could do it, but it was a read-only provider. Right. Which meant you could expose some information, but and you could write some events out, and that's it. And it's like, ah, oh, okay. Now, WMI, you're supposed to be able to expose some information. You're supposed to be able to change that information, invoke methods on it. So it's like a and a standard kind of management API. Uh, In Framework framework 3.5, you can now build a full-blown WMI provider. So here's the scenario, and and I'm sure one day I'll I'll find the time to write a sample for this, but you've got these terrible config files, these XML config files. Now, everybody goes, ooh, config files, we love config files. And It's like, kill, yeah, we made them in the most useful (laughs) human-readable format you could possibly imagine, which is XML. Yeah. Right. And, you know, the, the IT pros, some of the IT pros I've worked with go, you know what, Dave, config files were great. Now we have a brand new editor we can use. I'm like, so excited. What is it? Notepad. <laughs> so, you know, devs in Visual Studio, gets all the IntelliSense, everything like that. Fantastic. The IT pro needs to make a change. They might have an XML editor, they might not. Chances right. are well they're in Notepad or something like that. Now, XML is very forgiving. So if you miss off that bracket, and it just kind of, you know, automatically adds it on, doesn't it?
2: Um, no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> You're broke. I mean, I you, can, I w- you had me at XML is very forgiving. What, what show like, is okay. this? What,
3: yeah. what show am I on here? <laughs> <laughs> so for, for configuration, I mean, yes, it's human readable, and, yes, you can go through and hack it. But if you want to go and change, you know, if you've got a web form and, and – 36 servers in there, you want to make a change to the config files on five apps across those 36 servers, you're going to be writing, quite frankly, you know, some real dodgy scripts to go and parse and and, and kind of interact with that. Now, um, PowerShell does make that much easier, obviously. um, But we want a kind of better way. So how about um, this scenario where um, all your configuration is still in the config file. We don't want to change that because No, It's a good place, actually, to put it. Um, But you can build your own kind of management provider. And what you would do is you would read the config from um, the config file and then expose it via WMI. That would let the IT Pro inspect that. But also, here's the trick. In 3.5, you can also have a read-write property. So you could allow the IT Pro to go and change that property. And then all you've got to do is save it back down to the config file at some point. So you, you have to write this piece at the moment. You can imagine at some point, I would hope, we would put that somewhere near the framework, um, hopefully. Um, EntLibrary um, has an extension in version 3, which is a read-only provider, but actually they're working on a... Um, the, the framework 3.5 version actually has a full-blown WMI provider. So if you're using EntLib, you'll be able to expose... Well, if you're using EntLib all of your configuration is exposed via WMI, and you'll be able to change all of the configuration via WMI as well. And to make that easy, they're building a whole bunch of PowerShell um, scripts and commandlets to enable you to do that. So instead of the scenario of kind of tripsing through 100-and-odd XML files with ORC and GREP and whatever, you're now going to have this nice WMI clean interface to be able to go you know, in and change your config. And the great thing about WMI from an IT pro point of view is it's a known thing. They know about WMI. It might, yeah. You know, from my point of view,
2: what I look for is an app that supports WMI so that my existing tools, it's just like supporting SNMP. Yes. Now I know I'm going to be able to get messages from the
3: app and deal with Absolutely. it in my existing
2: management tools.
3: Absolutely. And it's a tick in the box sometimes. But you're right. It's 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 a well-known thing. A lot of the management tools use WMI. Now, going back to the health side of things, um, you can write events to WMI, but they don't go anywhere unless something's listening to them. Right. And I always feel that, you know, if you write it to the application log, at least it goes somewhere. Even if you don't have operations manager or anything else, you're still going to have a record of that. And, you know, for that reason, I would say WMI events is, is not your first choice for a health side of things. But for configuration, absolutely is, is fantastic.
2: But I mean WMI talks about instrumentation. Are you really going to be writing i am currently consuming this much memory into the log?
3: Um I wouldn't have thought so. Um and already in the framework we should be able to get that information from the all of the you know information provided by the the, the runtime itself. So We shouldn't be really at at framework level things when we are adding um, perf counters and and that kind of thing. If we're writing out how many threads and things are going then we're a little bit too low down, I think. Something in the framework should be doing that for us.
2: What is the relationship between the perf counters and WMI? Is there one?
3: Quite often, the same information is repeated. Right, Um, but there are actually two
1: different chunks of code that are doing it. Well, but WMI is the interface, right? It's probably looking at the perfs for, for things that it can, I'm sure, because those perf monitors are really l- low-level in the OS, aren't they?
3: Yeah. I, and I think, you know, if, if you take a look at, say, the WCF WMI provider, um, if you turn that on, um, you can actually query it and find out all of the services that are on your machine. And then you can. one of the properties there is actually the performance counter instance name so then you can go and use that to go and grab the perf counters and that i, I think that would be the way of, of doing it rather than exposing all of your perf data to via wmi as well as everything else i mean wmi really you, you everything disappears from wmi unless you read it
2: right so throwing
3: stuff out of nowhere and then you plug something into it and then you start getting that data Right. Well,
2: in it, so now I'm beginning to wonder if WMI is not becoming an orphan, because we're still dependent on Perfmon for our core instrumentation, and PowerShell's becoming the, the best way to send instructions and configurations to the application. I'm just trying to figure out where WMI fits.
3: Yeah, um, I sometimes have that conversation with myself as well. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it's
1: an older technology, so, you know.
3: Well, it is. the Perfmon's older than
2: WMI. True. You know, that's the funny thing. It's like I have an older technology and I have a newer technology, and they seem to be squeezing WMI from both directions. I always had the sense that WMI was going to replace Perfmon, and I was okay with that because Perfmon's got its issues. Yeah. But it just never happened. And I think it's just that the API for working with WMI was so brutal that a lot of folks just didn't go that way.
3: Yeah. I think as well, you know, if you look at WMI and and in the platform – One of the great things that we've just enabled recently is the WS management. Um, So now you can get at the WMI through WS management, which works very nicely over port 80 HTTP. So now we can query WMI without the good awful DCOM um, opening up all the ports kind of issue. Right. um, Which is kind of cool. Um, Now, if if you look at that across kind of not only the OS, but also the hardware and things, then... You know, as, as manufacturers build devices that are WS management enabled, again you've, you've, you're back to this standard way of being able to query and manipulate configuration data via WMI. So, you know, even though we've got PowerShell, I would su- suggest in the first instance PowerShell is probably going through WMI to to make a config change. Um, that's one way of doing it. Of course, you could just miss out WMI altogether and have PowerShell talk directly to your .NET. Um, but if you want to get to another machine, Then you need something that's network kind of capable, if you like, and that's quite difficult to kind of write some code on machine A that goes and opens a config file on machine B, and makes a change to it. So WMI can help out there because you can have WMI running on the other machine with your provider, and then you can connect up to it across the network and make that change. So I think it still has a, a big role to play, especially you know when you're maintaining. More
2: than one machine. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that there's one of the strengths is that WMI had a lot more infrastructure for combining data from different sources, although you can do it with PerfMon.
1: Yeah. Well, and PowerShell just sort of blows them both away. I mean, in terms of programmatically getting at information.
2: Yeah. Going yeah. in and requesting information or making changes, where yeah. PerfMon's purely just monitoring. Right. And, uh, well, and I'm. In some ways, I'm glad we're vaguely confused about this because I think that's a good representation of where the situation actually is. Yeah, yeah. That it isn't a very there isn't clear lines. It's not that we're not understanding. It's that it's, it's just it's, it's hard. Choice. There's not good There's easy choices of choice, There, I
3: think is the, the, the thing.
1: Well, I think we're coming down to just about the end of the show. Is there any uh, anything that we didn't cover,
3: David, that you want to talk about? No, I, I wrote a whole bunch of things down on the whiteboard, and we mentioned we said them all. <laughs> Except, we should mention
1: that you know PowerShell really is, you know, that's fantastic. the beast. Yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. PowerShell seems to be the way it's going.
2: I think we've the one thing I've got sitting in front of me that I I wanted to draw some clearer lines around this XML stuff because we you know we keep talking about XML being human readable. And I think that's true until the XML file is bigger than one screen. <laughs> yes. 200K XML configuration files are not acceptable.
3: Yeah. So well. here's the thing. You know, we have WCF, and, and it can be completely config-driven about what the endpoints are and everything like that. Fantastic. Have you looked at one of those config files in WCF?
1: No, but, I mean, just look at machine config in ASP.NET or in yeah, .NET. <laughs> I mean.
3: Yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's, it's complicated, and we need tooling to, to kind of make that easy. Right. Um, I, I hate working in, in XML. I think, you know, somebody, we should be paying somebody else to fix that so I don't have to look at it. That's, that's yeah. how I look at it. It's kind so of
2: better. Th- uh, now, so here I am drawing lines, guys. All <laughs> right. First off, keep your XML files small. Second off, yeah. should you, are we really tr- trying to say here, don't force people to edit XML by hand? That's uh, right. Shouldn't this be a utility in your application that updates
3: that file? You, you could even write a PowerShell script that encapsulates all that complexity of finding the right node and everything in. And there's, there's some great examples on the PowerShell blog and right. on my blog, so the, it's, it's easily doable.
2: But I think that's where we're headed here is don't edit it by hand. Either give them, a, give them a dialogue or give them a PowerShell access so that they can make the changes through a utility. Absolutely. The biggest strength that I see in XML config files is two things. The first is that it's the implication that I can make alterations to configurations that the application will pick up. Right. It's it's yeah.
1: If something goes wrong, you can just pull it up in a text editor, make an edit, save that's it, right. and things will work. I mean, that's right. really but, uh, what no, it's...
2: I mean, and I'm going to get away from the text editor thing, but it's just the whole idea that the configuration of the application is encapsulated in a form that could be
1: edited, more relevantly can be easily backed up, And can be propagated to other machines. The problem, of course, is that if it's not dynamically generated, um, then your XML uh, schema may grow at a far faster pace than your designer. And you always are out of sync by a few steps. So it really comes down to, that's where I think being able to just open up a text editor is really the the benefit of XML. Not that you're going to be in there all the time, but something breaks, that's the first thing you reach for. Well, and I just think the encapsulation is so important as opposed to stuffed in
2: a registry entry well, yeah. or written in a text file hidden somewhere else or under some other name. Right. The fact that we have it in a form where we can expect to be able to read it yeah. and know that everything is in there, that's sort of the important parts around these config files. Yeah. So
3: so here's the scenario for for This is the way you should think of it. Imagine your IT pro is actually your user. And you have use right. cases around them. You wouldn't give a user an XML file for anything, unless right. you were building an XML editor, obviously. But you know, if they want to create a, a purchase order or fill out an expense thing, we hide all of the complexity and we give them a nice clean GUI that we've spent a bit of time figuring out what the best way of looking at it is, what the task is that it's going to do. We need to do that for for IT pros for admins as well. So what task are they going to do? Are they gonna add users? Are they gonna print off reports and try and capsulate those use cases in scripts or PowerShell commandlets or, or some GUI? And if you're gonna build a GUI, it must be an MMC, but we'll get into that at um, another time. Um, <laughs> yeah,
2: that's a whole other show, I think.
3: That's a whole other show. Um you you really gotta think they are a user. What are they gonna yeah. be able to do? And start thinking of the, the tasks that they do rather than I've got six hundred config points, I'm gonna make it this dialog box with six hundred checkboxes. Yes, the mother of all dialogs. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, whoa, what does this mean? You know, if I want to turn on security in the app, I might have to in the config file. There might be nine things I have to change. Right. The admin wants to turn on security, so can we encapsulate those nine changes in one script?
2: Yeah, that's the way. It well, and about. and you bring up an interesting point about treating them like a user. The same way that the user might want something on his desktop, something on his home machine, and something on his mobile phone, the IT user needs a a dialogue-based, a remote access-based, and a command-line-based way to get at his features.
3: Yes. And, and a great thing to look at is if, if you have time, take a look at Exchange, um, the current version, because it, use, it does it exactly right. It has a PowerShell interface, so you can create mailboxes, move everything in Exchange can be done through PowerShell. In fact, it's the only way to do anything. They have a GUI on top of that, which is an MMC console, and everything you do in the GUI, it calls PowerShell, and PowerShell does the work. What that means is that if you do Exchange, you're going to be in the GUI. You're going to create a new mailbox. Perhaps you're going to create a mailbox for a room, for a conference room. So you go through the wizard, you fill out the dialogues and everything like that. You get to the end, and it. On the confirmation screen, it actually gives you the PowerShell command it's just executed. And you can cut that and paste it into your favorite um, PowerShell editor. And then you go, right, now I know what command I need to run. How can I make that some, how can I parameterize this and maybe read all of the rooms from my spreadsheet and then run this command for each room? Hmm. So if you built the same thing for, you know, your app as well and when the user creates a new user you give them the PowerShell script then they can start automating and that's the beauty about having the different interfaces the GUI allows you to very easily to go and discover and if you give them that link into the scripting world then they can go and automate the process
1: alright and with that I think we're going to call it a show David Aiken thank you very much for joining us thank you it's been a great conversation and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks